Hello, friends. It's good to see you. Happy Sunday. And happy 5th of July. So, you know, I, just to be honest, am so exhausted. I'm, I'm so tired. Like, I don't do okay if I'm up after 10 o'clock. I'm that guy. I turn in a pumpkin at 10. And so um, doing the whole fireworks thing and the family thing and fireworks thing combined, it just, like, turned me into something I don't enjoy being this morning. And um, so typically, you know, coming into church is not that bad. But today it's like I feel kind of like a zombie, like I'm half here and half not. Because, you know, so in our culture, fireworks are so important. And I'm from Ohio, and so there isn't a ton there in Ohio to actually do. So so whenever the 4th of July comes around, it's like build around fireworks and let's blow things up. And and um, and so, so Ohio has like the best fireworks display anywhere, like huge things. And, and it, 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 you know, they play music in the background and, and big things. And as a kid, I was all about fireworks and the bigness of the fireworks show. And, and how I kind of function and how I operate is I enjoy finding the patterns and I enjoy finding how things work and the, 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 the patterns that people have whenever they put something on. And so, so year after year after year, I found this pattern of all the fireworks shows seem to be exactly the same. And, and so I started thinking about the fireworks show and being the same. And then I, I started thinking, you know, all the fireworks seem to be the same in the same pattern and the same, same rhythm. And the, the, the different color of fireworks is going to tell you how that firework is going to perform. You know, it's going to go up, go choo, 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 choo. Or it's going to go choo, choo. Or, you know, the silver ones that have the color at the top, they'll, they'll shoot up and they'll spark out and that's it. And it, it, it but people act surprised year after year after year and instead of bugging me. It's like, there's no surprise here. Like, like, these things are so predictable. It felt like a conspiracy to me, you know. What's going on? It's, it's so expected. And in Ohio, just fireworks, and this is our thing. And, 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 and the older I got, I seemed to be, you know, not so impressed with the fireworks because I could expect the thing that I was going to get. And from talking to people and from my own personal experience, I found that it is common to also feel similar in the church and in our faith of the same kind of thing. It's common to be able to feel as if that the faith that we have are not, it isn't as exciting as it used to be. God seems further than he ever has. Or, or it seems like our faith has a f- formula. If I do this, do this, do this, here's the outcome. And it seems like the things that had been a surprise, the things that had been phenomenal, the things that everyone else is clapping and cheering about, it, deep down, if we are honest, it just seems so expected. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to be honest about. Because whenever you talk about our faith, it seems to be something that we always have to pretend that it is, uh, it, it is this adventure and it's invigorating. But, but oftentimes, sometimes it's not. And we are in this sermon series called Jesus Unexpected. And how do you do a sermon series called Jesus Unexpected of this guy who existed 2,000 years? years ago, because you would expect everything expected would have been unpacked by now. We've had 2,000 years. You're able to teach a sermon series called Jesus Unexpected because he's not done yet. Like, he, he didn't ex- 
exist just 2,000 years ago. He exists today, and he's doing stuff today. And a bunch of the things that are happening today and the things that he's doing today are unexpected. They're new, and they're fresh, and they're good, and they're invigorating. So today's big idea, today's big thesis is that a boring, expected religion comes from the idea and the belief that God is far away. That God is 2,000 years ago. A boring and predictable religion comes from a belief that God is distant. But an adventurous, unpredictable, unexpected relationship, an unexpected faith comes from a close relationship, a personal thing, something that happens today with Jesus. It's this difference between near and far, near and far. The, the idea of God is far away is somehow like deep ingrained inside of our psyche. And those of us who live our faith as if God is far, uh, 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 far away, our religion is boring and people hate it. But for those of us who are Jesus is very, very, very close, that you know what he smells like, this is what the world is waiting for the church to be. It's this difference between near and far. And from the age of, like, very, very early on, even Sesame Street understood that the difference between near and far are really important. Like, do you remember that clip that they even show today? Like, the puppet comes all the way up, he's like, near. And then he goes all the way back, far, near, Far, near, far, near, far, near, far. And they do it like 25,000 times. And as a kid, I thought it was awesome, but I got it. Here's, here's near, and here's far. Here's near, here's far. And you're like, I know. And oftentimes as a church, we proclaim, we know that God is near. But we don't act like God is near. We act like God is all the way back here. In fact, this seems to be this like theme of the Bible over and over and over again. It's the people in the Bible are proclaiming, God, you seem so far. And God's constantly getting all up in their business saying, but I'm near. And then back to the Bible, you seem so far. Where are you? Right here. Right here. They go back here and bad things happen when God is far away. But great things happen when they understand that God is right up in your business. Near, far, near, far. The centerpiece of the Christian faith Centerpiece, right smack in the middle. The Christian faith is Jesus, right? Jesus. They call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It doesn't mean God is stinking far away. It means God is with us. The centerpiece of the Christian faith is this idea and the truth that God is here. God is here. He's not there. He's here. Christian faith, Jesus is with us. God is with us. He is right here. But the profound identity of being human is we feel the reality that there is a gap, a distance between us and God. There's a gap. And Christianity at its core says that God saw the gap and he said, this is not okay. This is not good. And the 
difference between Christianity and any other religion is that, that Christianity does not believe in a God who is here and a people who is here. And the God is back there saying, man, I hope they get their act together because I hope that they can come towards me. No, he says, these people are ever going to get their act together. I'm coming towards them. I'm fighting their battles. I'm, I'm going to get dirty. I'm going to get my dirt under my fingernails. I'm, I'm going to show the world what I'm made of. Right? I'm going to show the world what I'm made of. I'm coming towards them. And at Christianity, as core is Emmanuel, God with us, God up in our business, and he came here. It's this vocabulary and this identity that we aren't like everyone else. We don't believe in a distant, far away God that we have to have a religion to stay in tune. Because Jesus is here. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, just affirms this reality that Christ is all about the being here for us. And Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So if you, you know, God came here, Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this. With the arrival with, of Jesus, the Messiah on the scene, the fateful dilemma is resolved, that dilemma of gap and distance and sin. Those who enter the Christ being here for us no longer have to be under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. There is a new power in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny and hands of sin and death and distance. So in Romans 8, whenever it's talking about the essence of Christ, the essence of the gospel, the essence of the centerpiece of Christianity, it has this idea of arrival. With the arrival of God in your business, with the, the, the arrival of the Messiah, the gap slams shut. For those who enter into the truth that Christ is here for us. It's a summary of Christ is here for us. If you enter into the understanding and the belief that Christ is here for you, instead of you are here for him. How many people in the church believe that we are here for Christ? Well, the gospel is that he is here for you. And he fights for you. Like a strong wind, he has cleared the air, freeing you from the distance between near and far. And this idea of distance is shut. This idea of religion is closed. This idea of I have to because is gone. And and. Jesus, who, 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 who we operate as the centerpiece of our faith, the centerpiece at, you know, of our gospel, he's constantly comparing himself to food. He's constantly comparing himself to food, which I'm all about, because I love food. And uh, he's talking about the bread, he's talking about the wine, he's talking about farmers all the time, and he's talking about crops and growing things and cutting things and harvesting things, and he talks to people, he says, for all those who are hungry and all those who are thirsty and come and, and we think that the centerpiece of 
Christianity is awesome, but, but what, happens, what happens whenever the people of the church aren't hungry? In fact, in fact, we as a church, we often talk about the purpose of coming to church and the purpose of fellowship and communion. It's to be fed. We talk about sermons as, that was an awesome sermon. It was meat and potatoes. Or that sermon was just milk. I hear that, you know. And so we often compare our Christian experience to food. And that's cool because so does Jesus. He's all about food. And so, so what happens, and I have this happen often, I'm just not hungry. What happens when you are in the church and you're supposed to be fed, but you're not hungry anymore? And how does that happen? How do people not be hungry? It's like things just don't taste good anymore. You can hear the awesomest things. You can have the awesomest friends, but it just doesn't taste like good food. So after I got married, something profound happened to me. Well, tons of things profound happened to me. Um, but I, I totally encountered this reality that different families go on vacations totally differently. So for me, I grew up in a family that vacations were really, really, really important. Like vacations were the epicenter of our hope, right? We're going to go on our family vacation and we're going to go to the beach. We always go to the beach. Because, not because that there's the ocean there, but because there's seafood there. My family operates around food. Like, food is a thing we do, and we do it all the time. So if the family vacation had been for seven days, hypothetically, um, they would be seven days of getting up for breakfast, going and spending a ton of money on breakfast, coming home, thinking about the thing that's going to happen in between breakfast and lunch and going out for brunch, then coming back, taking a nap, coming, then going out for lunch. And then we say, oh, we're so stuffed. We would go out, go home, take another nap, haven't gone to the ocean yet. Then, then we go out for dinner, have this huge meal for dinner, go, oh my gosh, I'm so full. Then we go home, play a couple board games, then Grandpa would say, who wants a pepperoni pizza? And me, I, want, I will never turn down a pepperoni pizza. And so it was like day after day after day after day of food and good food and awesome food, but we didn't ever do anything in between. And so by day number three, you hate yourself on vacation. Like your clothes don't fit and your flip-flops don't fit hop and flip. And like they just stick there and it's just a bad thing. And then you're like, I'm not hungry anymore. I don't want to eat any more food. But you go anyway because you're supposed to eat. You go anyway because you're supposed to eat because possibly if you don't eat, you're going to be hungry. So let's eat anyway. And we continue to go to expensive stuff, but the food doesn't taste good anymore. It feels like, ugh. But you're eating a $25 T-bone steak. It still tastes bad. And we would always save the expensive place, like the super expensive place till Friday night. The meal that would cost like our family 500 bucks to eat. Friday night. And we'd all be excited to go, kind of. And, and then we would go and we'd eat crab legs, the all-you-can-eat crab legs. How much crab legs can you eat at the end of that that week, not many at all. And you just feel like, what am I doing here? I want to get back to reality. 
how many of us feel like that in the church. We are constantly consuming, we're constantly eating, and we're constantly going, but we're at this place where there is not a single thing that you can hear that's going to actually sound good to you. There is not a single thing that you're going to be challenged by that's actually challenging. You're not hungry. We're not hungry because whenever we go on these types of vacations and this hoarding of food and the gorging, we don't allow the food to do what it's actually supposed to do. It's turn into energy, turn into the productive force within your soul that causes you to go on vacation, to go to the beach, to do what you're supposed to do. Sometimes, some of us are not hungry in the church, and food does not taste good because we do not allow the body of Christ, the bread, and the blood of Christ the wine to actually become a part of us. We don't allow our friendships and our communities to actually challenge us to do what it is supposed to do, to become the energy within our soul to actually cause us to go and be the church, to go out and be vacation for people who are dying. We, if you are full, it's time to exercise because until you do, nothing will taste good. On the other side, my wife, whenever I got married, I hated her family vacations. They were the worst things ever because they're all built around activities. And so for me, it's like, I'm excited to go eat, you know? And for her, it's, I'm excited to go backpack. I want to go on a hike. I want to go to a park. I don't want your park. I want your food. And so, so, so with her family, with her family vacations, it would be, here's the thing we're going to do. As soon as you get up, we're going to hike here, and then we're going to stay here, and then we're going to play at the, the pond all day, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. And, and for me, it's like, are you even going to talk about food? Because this is important. Where are we going to go? And then they would say, oh, we're going to pack our lunch. You don't pack your lunch on vacation, right? You, you spend money on vacation. You buy expensive food. It's like, we will pack it. But I tell you what, after being with her family on a day of vacation, it summarizes 15, 18 years of our family vacation. Because we did so much. And so you would climb the hill. You'd climb the mountain. You would go places. And then at the Top, they would say, who's hungry? And then they'd say, we got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> but the peanut butter and jelly sandwich tastes like gold. You know, after spending the day, it's like, gold, this is awesome. Give me more peanut butter. And then they'd have these tiny little candy bars, you know, a little chocolate. And, and, and then I ate this chocolate as if I've never eaten chocolate before. And I was like, holy smokes, you know, what is this? And like, it's Hershey's, you know. And you're like, mind blown. This food that was so simple and taken for granted before turns into this, this superhuman experience. And you're thirsty and you're like, here, have some water and you drink it and you know that feeling that you can just feel it like seep through your body as if you were dry and you're like yes I was actually thirsty and this water tastes holy and divine as if God brought it here himself because we spent the day doing what we were supposed to do and it creates hunger it creates anticipation and it makes you appreciate food 
It makes you appreciate food. It's, it's a beautiful thing whenever you encounter someone who is hungry, who is hungry for their relationship with God, who is hungry in their relationship with Jesus, because it seems like you're able to tell them anything. And they're like, oh, that was amazing. You know, like, dude, that's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they're like, I know, that just blew my mind. You, you, you know, those are the people who will go to Tiny Tots and by accidentally hear a teacher tell a kid, hey, did you know Jesus loves you? And they're like, oh my gosh, that's true. And it blows their mind because this is the biggest concept in the world. But if you are full, who cares? Of course Jesus does. That's what this church is about. But if you're hungry, that is like the water that seeps through your soul. So the question to me the question to me and the question to you is if this is true, if hunger is an actual thing, and, 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 and if Jesus actually cares about people who are hungry. In fact, he calls people that are hungry. You know, how does, does the church, how do I, how do you go from people who are full and stuffed and consuming and critiquing to being people who are hungry and who is all about, you know, the closeness of God, bringing him bringing us near and being all up in his space. Because the reality is, is I could preach the best sermon ever to a full people and it will stink. In fact, the best sermon ever is the Sermon on Mount. Right, Sermon on the Mount, preached by God himself on top of a mountaintop. Awesome. But if I got up here and I opened up the Bible and I started going down the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacekeepers. And I go all the way down. You guys would be bored out of your minds. Best sermon ever. What does it take to go from that point to a point of the people who actually heard the Sermon on the Mount, who were just invigorated? Because the people who heard the Sermon on the Mount, it turned their world upside down. The Sermon on the Mount changed everything because these people were actually hungry. How do I know these people are hungry? Because they had to hike. Their family vacation was different. So check this out. And ask you uh, five one and two, three, four, five, and six. <coughs> Whenever Jesus saw his ministry drawing a huge crowd, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, they climbed after him. So first of all, he was drawing these huge crowds, and he's like, I'm going to climb a hill. Right? There's all these people. I'm going to climb a hill. He did not climb a hill to, to speak out to everyone. In fact, he did the opposite. He climbed a hill to see who's coming after me. Who's going to climb too? And it says only the people who are committed to him came after him. Only the people that are committed to him heard what he was about to say. So he climbs this hillside. And the, those who are apprenticed to him, those who are committed to him, they climbed up after him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is the thing he said. You are blessed whenever you are at the end of your rope. Whenever you don't have enough, there is more of God for you. You are blessed whenever you feel like you have lost hold of the thing that is 
most dear to you. Because only then can you embrace the one who actually is most dear to you. You are blessed whenever you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. Because that is the moment that you find yourselves proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. You are blessed whenever you have worked up a profound hunger for God. Because he is the food and the drink and the best meal that you have ever had. Pretty much to summarize, God is near and your hunger is profound. Because whenever you come to a place that you say, is this all? God is near. Good for you. God is near. Here, and your hunger is profound because whenever you are broken and hurt and you feel like there isn't anything else, good for you. God is near. Whenever you're in pain, good for you. God is near. You are blessed. Your hunger is profound. Whenever you say these fireworks aren't exciting anymore, good for you. Your hunger is profound. God is near. Your hunger is profound. And if your hunger is profound and, and your hunger is crucial to the calling of Christ and the acceptance of Christ and this idea that we all want to feel close and we all want to feel as if there are things in the church that could possibly be unexpected instead of this formulaic, you know, thing that we plug into and everyone expects us to be who we're expected to be. How do we get there. I have no idea. I have no idea how to inspire hunger, but I do have questions for the church. I do have questions because to me, a good question can inspire a thousand good answers. So, I have three questions for us to ask as the church. I have three questions for you to ask as the person that you are, as a child of God, Three questions I want you to ask from today till the day that you die. This is an ongoing question-asking thing. Whenever the church quits asking questions and has more answers than questions, we are in trouble. So here's the first question I want you guys to ask. First, who is God? Who is God? And this is a simple thing that, that a bunch of us think is, is taught to us in tiny tots. The day we go to Sunday school, we are taught who God is. But the truth is, is who God is, is constantly being revealed over and over and bigger, more beautiful. Oh, I didn't know he was there too. Over and over and over. When you encounter scripture, ask yourself, who is God? Whenever you encounter your friends, good and bad, who is God? What is this teaching me about God? Whenever you get fired from your job, who is God? What does this teach me about God? Whenever you drink a cup of coffee that blows your mind, who is God? Whenever you're singing songs and whenever you don't want to sing, who is God? If you begin asking the question, who is God? The nearness seems to be profoundly, profoundly very real. Who is God? Who is God? Who is God? And ask your friends, who is God? Be taught, be taught and teach who is God and be in this continual learning process because I'm dying for you to tell me who God is. The human story, the human journey, the, the idea of journeying with Christ from today till the day you die is a continual answer to who is God 
if you ask this question more than you are comfortable, you will be taught and you will grow and your hunger will be insatiable. Who is God? The second question I want you to ask whenever you feel inspired to be hungry again, whenever you want to grow, is ask this question. What if Jesus were actually serious? What if Jesus were actually serious? See, we love the Bible and we quote the Bible and we memorize the Bible, but oftentimes they're not the teachings of Christ. We don't focus on his teaching to the extent that we focus on the other teachings of the Bible. Because oftentimes the teachings of Christ seem to be kind of far out there. In fact, personally, I grew up in a church that the pastor, would, he, he would often say, so the thing that Christ was trying to teach his people had been this. Because the thing he's saying is kind of impractical. So the thing he was trying to at home is this. Or Jesus was God and he was perfect and he, he understood that this is impossible. So here's what he was trying to get across. Well, if Jesus is God and God knows everything, then he knows how you think and the things that are possible, probable, and things you can achieve. So he would not teach things that he did not intend to teach. So what if the things that Jesus said himself, he meant to say, and he was serious about them, and he intended his church who follows him to believe that he was serious? What if we were as serious about the teachings of Jesus as the seven days of creation? What if we were as serious about the teachings of Jesus as the teachings of Paul? What if we were serious about Jesus? What if you memorized the teachings of Jesus and quoted him? If people quoted Jesus and took Jesus seriously, your postings on f Facebook would be a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if Jesus was serious? If you want to be close to Jesus, take him seriously. Get to know him. Follow him. Stop pretending. The world knows what people who are pretending to follow Jesus look like. It's expected. The third question that you have to ask if you want to continually be hungry and continually to grow and continually pull it in to the nearness of God, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? You see, the who am I becoming, it's, it's pointing forward. It's, it's growth. I don't care if you're Five or 105. Who are you becoming? Please, please don't ask the questions, who have I become? Or how did I get here? It's who am I becoming whenever you encounter scripture. How does this change who I'm becoming? Whenever you encounter friends, good and bad, who am I becoming? Whenever you ask Christ himself, are you serious? Who am I becoming? Whenever you're taught who God is more and more and more, who are you becoming? Because we are on a trajectory of either becoming more of us or more of Jesus. 
Who are you becoming? And if you want to be in the God here for us, in the Emmanuel, in the center of the faith, who are you becoming? Because becoming you is expected. And people are tired of you. People want the church. The world is hungry for the unexpected, the you being like Jesus, you taking him seriously. People love Jesus. They often can't stand his church. What would it be if you took him seriously? Who are you becoming? Who is God? And if we start answering those or finding the answers or journeying towards the answers or just hoping to ask the question, beautiful things happen and heaven crashes to earth. It's beautiful and it's good. It's yours. These are questions for us. These are for us to ask ourselves. These aren't things to argue on Facebook. You don't have to have two-hour-long Bible studies about these. These are simple questions. Who is God? What if Jesus was serious? Who am I becoming? It's not who are you becoming. Who am I? Ask yourself, introspective, your heart and Jesus' heart. He is near you. Stop debating. <laughs> Work on your own hearts. Create your own hunger. I didn't expect to go there. <laughs> so the thing that's profound, the thing that's profound that I think is super cool is, is whenever you take ownership of your own faith, it becomes real. It becomes your own. It can't be boring. And if it is boring, it's your own fault. So a couple of years ago, I had a friend invite me over to his 4th of July party. And personally, I have never gone to a 4th of July party because in Ohio, you just have the big fireworks thing that everyone goes to. And we got invited over to this 4th of July party. And there in his garage, he had this whole table of these boxes that looked like a carnival in a box, you know. And he had spent his whole inheritance on fireworks. And then my eyes got huge. I'm like, can you buy these here? Because in Ohio, you can't have your own fireworks. Here, it's, you can, apparently. You're able to go and buy your own fireworks. And he says, the 4th of July is my favorite holiday. And for me, I'm like, eh, fireworks. And so that evening, after it gets dark, he takes these fireworks, these carnival boxes. One of them is called the Tropical Explosion and Excalibur and the Kingdom Come. And, and, and he takes them to the center of the road. And I'm like, are we really going to do this? Are the cops going to come? Are we going to get busted? You know, how's this going? He's like, it's totally legal. And so, and so then he just starts setting them on fire. It was our fireworks show. And the things that were going to come out of those boxes, who knows? And he had a five-gallon bucket full of water in case we started a fire. Because we could start a fire. I mean, like, just the idea that I could do something that could cause havoc and erode and fire and danger. And we're setting boxes, and they're exploding and shooting up. And I felt like I was two years old again going, what's next? What are we going to blow up now? Because it was ours. It was mine. I held the fuse. If you hold the fuse, you can't complain about the things that are about to go off. In fact, it feels alive. 
what would it be like for us to hold the fuse of our own faith, for us to hold the fuse of our own closeness to God? And so, so, so the, the union is here because big stories, big relationships, big exciting adventures with Jesus are had by those who are willing and open to experiencing them compared to just sitting back in the stands and seeing the fireworks explode and saying, those are boring. I expected that. What would it be like to take the ownership of your own spiritual life, holding the fuse, holding the box, and causing Excalibur to come to life? What would that be like? Because the deep relationships with Jesus understand the profound nearness that he is here. He is here, near, near, near. And if you just understood near, near, I could play Sesame Street now, near, and say, I get it, I get it. No, near, near, he is here, Emmanuel, God with us. And if you grasp and understand that's just a firework that just blew up all over you, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's yours, and that's your story to tell. Please pray with me. God, thank you for being a God who is not 2,000 years old, and you stayed 2,000 years ago in the past, but you are profoundly near, you are profoundly here, and that you do stuff today. And you'll do stuff tomorrow. Thank you for being the God that people are praying for. Thank you for being the answer that people don't have yet. Thank you for being the God who has grace and compassion about the people who oftentimes don't believe in him. God, we thank you for your profound nearness. God, for those of us who have, who have been in the church forever. Show us how near, how close, how inside you really are. God, for those of us who are new in the faith and we're, we're kind of hoping for something else, show us how profoundly near you are. Blow our minds. Show us your face. Open our eyes to see your eyes. Put our hand on your chest to feel your heartbeat near God, for those of us who are on the outside and we're judging the church for the thing that it has been, hoping that it will not continue to be, show us how near you are. Show us how alive you are. Show us the sound of your voice. Show us the color of your eyes. God, we thank you that you are here and that you do stuff inside of the hard heart inside the soft heart and the hearts that are just about to grow. God, we think that you are an active God who pulls the sleeves up in his arms and you get the job done, that you're not waiting for us. God, we thank you for your church, the people you love and continue to love, even though we're not perfect even though we won't ever be perfect, you are all about us. God, thank you for fighting for our stories and fighting to close the gap. God, 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 in this time that we respond to you, 
who you are and the things that you are doing. I pray that your spirit brings this this profound sense of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is here. Heaven crashes to earth. Give us a hunger. For those of us who have not been hungry in a long time, God, create a hunger, create a desire, create a thirst. Call those who are hungry. Call those who are thirsty. God, do what you do best and change our lives to be more like you. In Christ we pray.